It's good to see some guests today. We'll start off by praying this prayer together. It might take a little while for things to settle down back there, but I think we can go ahead and get started. We'll be talking about love and joy today, so I thought this little piece from the daily prayer would be appropriate. Let's pray together. As we rejoice in the gift of this new day, so may the light of your presence, O God, set our hearts on fire with love for you, now and forever. Amen. I think most of you know that we've been having a series all fall and winter and spring on uh, the virtues and the vices, learning to discern what is good and what is evil. I guess that's one, another way to say it. Wonderful teachings. I've enjoyed them all. I commend those who have been doing these teachings, and I really appreciate it. Today is the last one. And uh, last week I was supposed to preach, I mean, teach on love, the virtue of love. And today I was supposed to take joy. But last week it turned out that I had to travel overseas. And so uh, Matt shared something a little different with you, kind of in summary. Matt, who oversees these teachings. And uh, I'm going to be trying to combine love and joy in one teaching. And I think love is going to get the emphasis here, but um, here's what the approach I'm going to be taking. I'm planning to focus on experiencing God's love so that we can imitate what we've experienced, taste and see that the Lord is good. The joy part I'm going to present as flowing out of God's love, as all things flow out of God's love. I've learned from Thomas Merton and many other writers a way to understand the new man and the old man that Paul writes about. Merton and others see, use the term false self for the old man. <clears throat> In modern terms, the old man is the ego, our sense of self, the survival instinct in us with its customary thoughts and feelings. The ego is contrasted to the spiritual person that we are, that Merton would call the true self, and what Paul calls the new man, and the inner person, or the heart. Paul regularly instructs us to focus on this inner person rather than the old man or the false self. For example, in Colossians 3.1, Since then, he says, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not unearthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. The person who has died is, of course, the false self. Throughout Scripture, we read of the temple or the tabernacle, 
This central image is very helpful as we begin to understand Paul's teaching that both corporately and individually, we are the temple of God. Nothing new here. God in his first, I mean, John in his first letter pushes the concept of the love of God, which is our subject today, to the point that he dares to make a complete identity between the two concepts, saying that God is love. If we could move into the love, which is God in us, that is, if we could know God in the sense of experiencing God with our five senses and beyond the five senses, we would be more likely to take that love into the rest of our daily lives. It is through the love we experience from God and from others that we can also dare to take the step of faith to love God, others, and ourselves. Indeed, we find that these three loves, God, others, and ourselves, can only be experienced as one, just as God is one. When Christ presents the greatest commandment, he begins with Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad is one. Now what I am saying is that like Paul, we can be crucified with Christ and live. Or like Jesus taught, we can be the seed that falls to the ground and dies so that it brings forth much fruit. The part that dies is the ego. The part that cannot die is our spirit made alive by the presence of God himself, God's spirit in us. We all believe these things. At the beginning of Romans 5, Paul states that the love of God has been poured into our hearts. From this we know that love, as God, is already available to us, but how do we access that presence? How do we experience God in us? We also glory in our sufferings, writes Paul, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul is saying here that all the virtues that we have discussed over the last many weeks are summarized in love, and that love is already in us. So again the question comes, what can bring the inner person made in the image and likeness of God and full of the Holy Spirit into our awareness and into our actions? The answer is, that, is an answer that the ego must resist. It is the answer of Jesus and Paul. It is the cross of Christ. Only through suffering and experiencing God as love can we grow in the virtue of love. Let me tell you a story about the value of suffering. 
A little fish asked its mother, what is water? And so the mother tells her all about water and shows her pictures and gives her a careful definition of water. And the little one still doesn't get it. Then one day the little fish is caught on the hook of a fisherman and pulled out of the water. Hanging above the water, her gills are pulsing and she struggles for lack of oxygen. She wriggles and twists and feels like she is dying when suddenly with a splash she finds herself back in the water. She feels her strength coming back and then swims to her mother and says, now I know what water is. In the same way, our depression, our sickness, and all our pain and scrapes with death have the potential to bring a deeper understanding of God's love in which we swim. In him, we live and move and we have our being. Suffering is always with us, and prayer is the alchemy that turns suffering into love, bringing the experience of God to us, body, soul, and spirit. That is where we will go today together. We will join Jesus as he prays in the wilderness for 40 days and as he prays in the garden before he went to the cross. We will pray the way he must have prayed. As it is written in Luke, Jesus often withdrew to the lonely places and prayed. He prayed as the psalmist described, be still and know that I am God. Once when Jesus prayed with words, he explained that the words were for the good of those standing about him I don't think there was much need for human language between Jesus and the Father. Did Jesus pray as the psalmist says? On God alone my soul waits in silence. Wouldn't he have heard the still, small voice in which Elijah found God? Today and through our Christian history, this kind of prayer is called contemplative prayer, centering prayer, listening prayer, and this is what we will practice this morning. Recently, I asked my Aramaic-speaking friend from Syria, Dr. Abdul Masih Saadi, about the ancient Aramaic view of prayer. I'll pra- paraphrase what he said. The Syriac word for prayer in the Pshitta that is the Aramaic Bible, etymologically combines morphemes to mean to lean forward and listen intently. Saying this, my friend's voice changed to a whisper and he cupped his hands behind his ears. When Jesus used the word for prayer in his Aramaic language, He was thinking of this intensely alert posture of listening for the voice of God. This ancient Aramaic understanding of prayer speaks of an open and receptive stance, leaning into God, 
with every sense attuned and alert. In Christian history, two terms have been used for this kind of prayer, cataphatic and apophatic. Those of you who know Greek will understand these terms to mean with images and without images. Images here can be extended to mean any use of words or pictures or sounds or even feelings that help us to understand what God is communicating. Prayer with imagination, Lexio Divina, and the use of icons in prayer are forms of cataphatic prayer. Now, recently a friend of mine showed me a Coptic icon called Friendship. You'll see it on the paper that you have, that I the handout. And um, what I'm going to ask you now is to just, that you just quiet your heart before God and look at the picture on your handout in a receptive attitude of hearing from God. And using your imagination, looking at the picture, allow God to speak to you about what you see. I'll leave you with that for a moment, and we'll come back to it. Perhaps you don't think of uh, looking at a picture as a time of prayer, but um, historically the church has thought of it that way. Would somebody be willing to share what you, the things that you see, the things that you imagine as you look at that picture, what could God have been speaking to you? What did you understand from that picture? It's called friendship, by the way. We don't know who the two people are, but that, yeah, she spoke a little bit softly. Now I'm going to make you yell it out, Christy. Could you do that? Thank you. Yeah. Or they're looking straight at their mission. Yeah. What what makes us think they have a mission? The book. The book, yeah, and the scroll. <coughs> it appears that the, the image I have here on the paper didn't print as beautifully as it could have, but I think 
You can see he's holding something there. Look at the ears on both of them. Yes. Yes. And in prayer, looking at this as a receptive moment of prayer, all of these thoughts begin to flow into us. Uh, things from scripture that we hear. We notice that there's a cross and one halo and uh, begin to assume that this must be Jesus himself. The fact that one has ears, he who has ears to hear, let them hear. Well, what is he going to hear? He's going to hear what his friend says, which is Jesus. Jesus, his ears don't show because the point is that he has the one, the one, is the one who right, has the right to speak. Many things that you can draw out of. This is just one example of cataphatic prayer. Let's take another example of cataphatic prayer, which is, um, uh, I'm going to use kind of a modified Lectio Divina, Lectio Divina, the way I learned Latin in a Catholic setting. Reading each line once and then pausing for 10 to 15 seconds um, of silent meditation on that line. I, we're we're going to be using Ephesians 3 for this, and you have it right there on your sheet. Uh, it doesn't hurt if you want to look at the words as well as hear the words, or you can close your eyes. It is important that you relax and receive. I bow my knees before the Father, praying. That according to the riches of his glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power <coughs> through his spirit in your inner being. so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, 
I have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So who would be willing to share what you heard as you listened through that, that prayer? lovely. Another one? Yeah. So it seems to be a peculiar kind of power. Mm-hmm. Um, probably, probably different from what most other mm-hmm. power. Power to know. And power to know the unknowable. I hope everyone is able to hear him. Should I repeat it? Okay. Looks like you are. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Capacity to sort of go around to measurements, how do we take in the enormity of 
Ah, I like that. Thank you, Steve. Let's take one more. Joy? I have to, I'm from Georgia. I can't remember the transformative. It's the idea that instead of it being something that we try to understand, something, there's a lot of try to comprehend kind of thoughts in here. And what I heard, first of all, was that the love of God goes beyond that and it transforms inside beyond mere logic. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, God speaks to us. You'll hear that from Father Martin this morning if you didn't catch the first sermon. You'll get it next, next service. Apophatic prayer, on the other hand, is a kind of Christian meditation in which prayer assumes a completely receptive mode. The prayer listens intently with all his senses or her senses. Many of you have experienced this kind of prayer and perhaps you pray this way daily. And most of you remember that in January, the last time I was up in front here, we took seven minutes to move into this kind of prayer, completely in silence. and. In that short time, several of you told me afterwards that you actually felt the presence of the Lord. This kind of experiencing the love of God takes place when the Spirit's love penetrates the resistance of our ego, touches our will, and thereby changes us, as Joy was explaining, from within. But how could one describe this experience? with the Lord. How does one say the unsayable? God's love is reality itself, intensified at the infinitesimal point where time past and time future meet. We experience a moment in which the past no longer exists and the future has yet to begin. And in this hiatus, We are in a luminous place that extends to infinity in every direction. At that moment of awareness, we realize that nothing is missing. Or as the psalmist said this morning, we lack nothing. Our limbs may feel a lightness and a shimmering may move in waves from our center to our extremities. We may become aware of an expansiveness that is, at the same time, the unity of all things. I have said, I have just said, apophatic prayer is wordless and imageless, but I have yet to hear of anyone who writes or tells about the contemplative experience without making it clear that completely wordless or imageless prayer 
may be the desire, but it is never the complete experience. Thoughts will come, all kinds of thoughts, brilliant ones, beautiful ones, sinful ones, ugly ones. A contempl in contemplative prayer, we view these thoughts as it were from a distance and let them go, neither clinging nor rejecting. None of them can be compared to one second in the presence of love itself. As I taught in January, it is common to use a word or a phrase to help us refocus on the imageless stillness within. When the thoughts come, we will be very gentle and forgiving with ourselves, just as Christ is gentle and forgiving toward us. We will not try to take control or to force anything. We want to be completely malleable in the hands of God without judging, analyzing, critiquing, explaining, fixing, controlling, or even understanding the present reality. We can move into a childlike stance in which we watch and wonder and thank God for what is. This is grace. This is salvation without works. We are taking our hands off because we do not believe our efforts are as, are as effective as God's efforts. Paul teaches that Christ emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and humbled himself to join humanity. When we distance ourselves from our thoughts, we are imitating Christ by emptying ourselves, letting go of the self that we think we are, and returning to our center, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. As Jesus taught, we will now go into our closet and shut the door to be with the Father. I will ask you to be as still as possible, both feet on the floor, Hands in your lap. Relaxed and open as in worship. We sit straight to remind ourselves of the respect God has for us as his holy temple. We are silent because God is silent and out of silence he created all things. We close our eyes because out of darkness God created light. And when Moses met God on the mountain, he went into thick darkness. We will sit in silence together for, for about 10 minutes. And at the close, we will say the Gloria together as we begin, become aware of the gentle rise and fall of your breathing. 
Today, your centering phrase will be, I love you. And with the first breath, you say, I love you to God. And with the next breath, it will be God saying, I love you to you. We are sinking deeper and deeper into the oceanic and infinitely deep love of God. Let's begin.
Glory be to the Father. You can pray with me and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, forever. Amen. Some of you uh, who have not gotten into the habit of quiet prayer like that <clears throat> may have been surprised that you could sit for 10 minutes and it would pass so quickly. Um, what can we expect from a regular habit of contemplative prayer? Here's just a few things that I wrote down there on your sheet as well. An increased sense of wonder and awe in worship and in all creation. A reduction in reactive behavior. An increase in inner freedom and a sense of inner spaciousness. Less defensiveness in your responses to your loved ones. <clears throat> An increasing sense of compassion for the suffering. A more desperate longing for God's presence in your life. A greater comfort with mystery. You feel less driven to work. Food addictions and other addictions loosen their grip. Scriptural commands to pray without ceasing and pray in the spirit at all times begin to make sense. You find yourself breaking into tears when you recall the sweetness of the presence. You will be less inclined to hide. Spiritual music may undo you. At times there will be grateful tears as you receive the body and blood of Christ. You will listen more and talk less. You will be more sincere and less cynical, more childlike. You'll be less likely to be manipulative. For the joy that's set before you, God will lead you through your shadow self and your shame, helping you to release both. you will probably laugh more. Teachers of contemplative prayer say that you only learn to let go with practice. The ego is very stubborn and will always try to retake control. But gradually you find yourself stepping back from your false self and stabilizing in more frequent awareness of God's presence in you. You will tend more and more to be present, open, and awake to God's presence made manifest in the concrete details of the reality of this present moment. This is the fruit of a maturing practice of contemplative prayer. Most of the teachers say that it takes a minimum of about 20 minutes for each session, so you can 
think about that. There, there are no rules for prayer. There is no method that manipulates God to come and be with us. It, this is what we're doing here may be helpful for you. On the other hand, I'd like to give a disclaimer. I've made a strong case for contemplative prayer as a way for the virtues, virtue of love and all the virtues to become part of you. If you have no interest in contemplative prayer, be at peace. God's love will not be withheld from you. He will not be denied. Your love is too important to him. Paul says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What I'm saying is that contemplative prayer has been a tremendous help to me to sense God's love in my life and it may be to you. And if it isn't, God will catch up to you and show you his love one way or another. All will be well, all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. I wonder if there's anybody, I suppose I've used up the time, but um, have I used up the time? <laughs> He's saying yes. I was just gonna ask for questions. Uh, some people have the question, for example, um, cutting yourself off from the world and your thoughts and everything else, how does this, what does this have to do with active interaction with the world and doing something about it? And, uh, yes? No, I think what I've done today is about what I would do normally. It's, it, it, it's, um, yeah, it's just what, what seems to work for me. There are all kinds, probably as many as there are people, ways to apply this. You'll see a list of books at the end there, and um, there's lots more. And reading books is not praying the prayers. It'll give you some ideas maybe, but the only thing that really counts is that time in silence with God. Okay? <laughs> Thanks so much. God bless you. <laughs>